from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I will be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe that it is already February. This week, we're going to cover some of the stories that caught our attention this month. It's time for the February News Roundup. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was primarily written and recorded on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. This week, some of the stories we're covering revolve around industrial threats to the health of land and water in Canada. First Nations and Indigenous organizers continue to stand up for the health of the land that they've lived on for time immemorial. As you listen to some of the stories in this episode, we encourage you to think about where you live and how you can support Indigenous-led land and water protection in your area. Check out our website or the notes for this episode for some links to get you started. This month has seen a lot of big stories. First, here's Liam Harrop with an update on the Alberta coal story that we covered last month. In our last News Roundup episode, we reported on the United Conservative Party's move to promote metallurgical coal mining in the eastern slopes of Alberta's Rocky Mountains. This included rescinding the 1976 coal policy, which restricts or prevents open pit mining in this area of the Rockies for certain categories of land, as well as attempting to change the water use rules for Eastern Slope's watershed. After widespread public opposition to the cancellation of the 1976 coal policy, the UCP has reversed this decision, moving to reinstate the policy and consult with the public about creating a modernized new policy. In a CBC article, Energy Minister Sonia Savage states that information about the consultation process for updated coal legislation will be announced in the coming weeks. When asked at a press conference why the government had not consulted with Albertans to begin with, Savage stated that they had made a mistake and was quoted saying, what we're doing today is what we should have done in the beginning. A judicial review requested by First Nations, ranchers, environmentalists, and other Albertans before the coal policy was reinstated remains in play, according to a story by the Taiyi. The argument behind the request for the review is that Premier Jason Kenney broke the law by rescinding the 1976 policy without any kind of consultation. According to the Taiyi, the request for the judicial review will be ruled on in March. While reinstatement of the 1976 coal policy has initially been met with guarded enthusiasm, as it means the cancellation of 11 new coal leases, and a role for the public to at least comment on what their government is doing, Albertans are right to remain critical and vocal. Exploration work at six existing leases located in the Rocky Mountains and its foothills will continue. These companies have made it clear to their investors they expect to become operational, some in as little as 15 months. 
pending approval by the Alberta Energy Regulator. For them, this confidence may very well come from the private conversations and assurances made between the provincial government, lobbyists, and international coal companies behind closed doors. These conversations may remain secret from Albertans. What we do know is that exploration projects may sound benign, but they include major disturbances like roads and drilling pads. Yet these developments pale in comparison to what new mining operations will mean for the water quality and quantity for everyone living downstream of headwaters in the Rockies. This leads us to why Albertans need to keep scrutiny and pressure on their government. In a letter from Environment Minister Jason Nixon to one mining company chairman, the government stated their intention is to streamline policy and processes to bring greater certainty and stability to our investment climate and make Alberta open for business. Like the Hydra of ancient Greek mythology, the United Conservative Party's metallurgical coal strategy has many heads. After trying and failing to delist parks along the foothills, then rescinding and reinstating the 1976 coal policy, the government has made changes to water quality monitoring in the province. In 2019, a five-year environmental monitoring plan put out by the provincial government showed that monitoring stations on two rivers and a creek polluted with selenium leached from coal mines were put out of commission. Cuts to environmental monitoring budgets over the past five years have caused a reduced capacity to monitor the health of the province's air and water. Coal is the geological source of selenium, which is toxic at high levels. According to the CBC, an independent analysis of Alberta's data on the polluted rivers and streams revealed that the McLeod River, the Greg River, and the Luscar Creek in the foothills east of Jasper are all heavily contaminated with selenium. All these water bodies also have high rates of pollution, which is much higher than Alberta's alert level. Readings from monitoring of contaminants in this area over the past 20 years should have prompted closer attention to the affected water. This doesn't seem to match up with the apparent strict regulatory standards that the United Conservatives have set or in place when defending their plan to increase coal mining in the Rocky Mountains. The health of these headwaters are important to plants, animals, and the people living downstream of coal mines. The provincial government has sold exploration leases for 1.4 million hectares of land, which contain the headwaters of rivers that all of southern Alberta rely on. We'll continue to keep tabs on this story as it progresses. Thanks, Liam. Next up, we turn our ears to the south as Elizabeth Dowdell discusses an oil spill in California. On Tuesday, February 9th, the town of Richmond, California made international headlines when a pipeline between a Chevron refinery and Loading Wharf started to leak, pouring an estimated 600 gallons of petroleum mix into the San Francisco Bay. The leak, reported by a community member around 2.40 p.m., was about a quarter inch in diameter and for two hours, poured pollution into the water at a rate of five gallons per minute until being shut down around 5 p.m. the same day. Residents in the area reported smelling something like gasoline on the air. Nearby beaches were quickly closed and a public health advisory was issued into the evening. 
The town of Richmond is located roughly 12 miles from San Francisco, has about 110,000 residents, and a long history of environmental complaints about the Chevron refinery. Covering 3,000 acres, the refinery is a large air and water polluter during normal operations. According to The Guardian, this Chevron refinery has been served 147 enforcement actions by the Environmental Protection Agency in the last five years, and at least 29 violations by the Bay Area Air Quality Management District between 2016 and 2018. The cause of this most recent leak has yet to be confirmed, but Richmond City Council is set to request a report on the cause and order remediation activities at their next meeting. This newest failure had me wondering, what do you do in an emergency like this? The fire alarm went off in my building today, and dear listeners, I was not prepared. I walked outside still carrying my cup of tea, but forgot my cat in the apartment. Thankfully, a neighbor had just burnt their lunch, but how do you respond to a serious emergency like a sudden oil spill on open water? How do you protect an ecologically delicate environment like the San Francisco Bay? What tools do we really have to work with in these emergencies? I've seen pictures of the floating booms used to contain and absorb petrochemical spills and of people basically mopping oil off of shorelines. Those Dawn commercials about oil slick birds are great marketing, but is dish soap really our best defense against an oil spill? While some have critiqued Chevron's response to the spill as weak, I did a little bit of research to understand why oil spills or leaks happen and how they can be managed. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, leaks happen for one of four reasons. People make mistakes, equipment breaks, a natural disaster strikes, or a deliberate action like illegal dumping, war, or terrorism is at fault. On both fresh and salt water, oil usually floats. So once a petrochemical is released, it can spread quickly. This means a fast response is crucial. Management practices differ in Canada and the USA, but three pillars of defense seem to be common. The first pillar is prevention, which includes things like maintaining infrastructure, redundant design, think double hulls on ships, regular inspections, experienced personnel, and following safe transport practices. The second pillar is preparedness, meaning there is an emergency response plan in place that has been practiced and coordinates local, regional, and national responders. In the Richmond spill, multiple agencies coordinated a response, including Chevron, the U.S. Coast Guard, the California Office of Spill Prevention and Response, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the Contra Costa County. First responders included local firefighters, Chevron employees, and county hazmat crews. The third pillar is the actual containment and cleanup. A handful of technologies may be used to do this. If the spill is on the water, these technologies can include booms, which create a surface barrier so the spill doesn't spread, skimmers, which are boats that scoop up spilled oil, sorbents, which are just big sponges, chemical and biological dispersants, which break down the oil, and in situ burning, which means lighting the spill on fire on the water. If the spill has reached land, you can wash it with high or low pressure hoses, diluting the contamination. You can use vacuum trucks to suck it up. 
or shovels and other equipment to dig up and move the contaminated land, sometimes back into the water so the oil can just be washed off in the waves. I don't know much about the subtleties of petroleum spill response, but hoses, vacuums, and shovels sound pretty weak to me. While it's more than dish soap, given the billions of dollars invested in technologies and infrastructure to extract, refine, transport, and use petroleum products, I can't help but think our defense against spills and the methods used to protect our shores and waterways are severely lacking. This disparity in investment and the ongoing reports of different oil and petrochemical spills sounds like bad news to me. Thanks, Elizabeth. Let's continue to hear about some big stories from the United States. Here's Sonic Patel talking about power outages in the U.S. This February, blackouts across power grids in the United States left millions in the cold and dark. The reason? An unprecedented cold from the Arctic winds of the polar vortex. States from North Dakota to Oklahoma faced power outages, as did millions south of the border in Mexico. One of the most affected states was Texas, where millions of homes and businesses were left without power. These power outages are not only frustrating and costly, but as temperatures remained incredibly cold, were deadly. More than 35 people in Texas have been confirmed dead. How exactly did this disaster happen? One big reason for the power outage was impacts to power producers. The freezing conditions caused shutdowns at several different types of generators, including natural gas, wind, and nuclear, knocking out a significant portion of power production in the state. The electricity system was designed and regulated, with little regard for freezing winters, and therefore were unprepared for the cold that swept the state. The nature of the grid also left Texas in a dangerous spot. Unlike most other states, the grid in Texas is relatively isolated, with fewer connections to the adjacent, federally regulated grids, meaning that the state grid has less ability to bring in power produced elsewhere to cover demand in the state. Some politicians and commentators were quick to point the finger at renewable energy for the crisis, including Republican Governor Greg Abbott, who said the crisis proved fossil fuel is necessary for the state of Texas. However, a closer look at the facts challenges that perspective. While icy conditions did eliminate about half of the wind energy capacity in the state, a representative of the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas stated wind shutdowns accounted for less than 13% of the total power outages. The freezing conditions affected all of the generating sources in the state, including the natural gas and coal power plants, that formed the majority of generating capacity and accounted for the majority of outages. Some experts have noted that it's not intrinsic that wind energy is threatened by cold conditions. After all, many turbines in Europe and Canada operate throughout freezing temperatures. In Canada, we even have turbines just south of the Arctic Circle. 
The larger issue is that Texas, where some state representatives have historically championed the lack of regulation on the electricity industry, did not require their generators to be winterized, which means modified to function in freezing temperatures. Even after the last major outages in 2011, when multiple studies recommended winterizing the grid, electricity resilience legislation was not passed by the House. While the cold largely abated after a long week and power returned to most Texans, the impact of the disaster linger. Frozen pipes burst and need to be repaired, while several remain without water or were flooded. Some customers found that, after a week of disaster, their variable rate power contracts meant that they faced $1,000 electricity bills. This power outage disaster has demonstrated the growing threat of the climate crisis, as unprecedented weather threatens unprepared jurisdictions. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, it's the February News Roundup. We are covering some of the biggest news stories of the last month. Earlier, we covered changing policies on coal extraction in Alberta, and then we turned to the South, hearing about major environmental news stories from the United States. Now, let's turn ourselves around and hear about some of the biggest stories from the North. First up, here's Andrea Miller talking about a park expansion in northeastern Alberta. Stretching from Alberta's northern boreal forest and into the Northwest Territories, Wood Buffalo National Park is Canada's largest national park and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But the Alberta oil sands and other nearby resource extraction projects are encroaching on its borders. In an effort to protect wood buffalo and mitigate the impacts of these projects, Miccosoo Cree First Nation has championed the establishment of a buffer zone at the southern border of the park to safeguard this ecologically sensitive region and make the park more resilient to external stressors from industry. Kiteskanonohone Wildland Provincial Park was established in 2019, and this month the Alberta government announced the planned expansion of the park. The over 160,000 hectare park will nearly double in size, expanding by over 140,000 hectares to connect the existing Birch River and Richardson Wildland Provincial Parks. Land users and elders identified the areas that needed to be included in the park, but due to conflict with industrial activities, the initial park boundaries were not consistent with what had been proposed. Miccosoo Cree maintained that the boundaries were not sufficient, and that an expansion was necessary to create a full buffer for Wood Buffalo National Park. Now, the proposed park expansion will protect a greater area of the Ronald Lake Wood Bison Herd Range, a culturally significant species for the Miccosoo Cree, as well as the largest and most genetically diverse population of wood bison. Kiteskanonohone translates to Our Land in Cree and Dene, respectively. 
the park was initially established under the NDP government, acting on the initiative and leadership of Miccosu Cree First Nation, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, and other neighboring communities surrounding Wood Buffalo and the Peace Athabasca Delta. The largest inland freshwater delta in the world, the Peace Athabasca Delta is the convergence of the Peace, Athabasca, and Slave Rivers at Lake Athabasca, and is situated partially within the boundaries of Wood Buffalo National Park. Water levels in the delta are falling as a result of oil sands development and upstream hydroelectric projects. There are concerns that this downward trend will continue with the construction of the Site C Dam. The creation of this buffer zone was one of 17 UNESCO recommendations issued to protect the park and keep the region from being added to the list of world heritage in danger. The Tech Frontier Mine, proposed for just south of Wood Buffalo's southern park boundary, would have put additional pressure on this region, and Kitaskanonohone was the main mitigation measure proposed by Mikasu Cree. Last February, Tech Resources Limited made the decision not to move forward with the Frontier Mine project. The expansion of this park is being celebrated as a successful collaboration between government, Indigenous communities, and industry. Companies including Tech, Athabasca Oil Company, Synovus Energy, and Imperial Oil gave up their mineral agreements in this area so that the proposed expansion could go ahead. But according to Environment Minister Jason Nixon, the area is currently mixed use, with little industrial activity taking place. Listeners, I couldn't quite get my hands on the geologist's report that would probably tell us, guess what? The land that these companies, quote, surrendered was never going to be productive for mining anyways. There is no doubt that this expansion is a win for protecting this ecologically valuable landscape and for asserting Miccosu Cree treaty rights in this region. But if the UCP is going to showcase this park, established under the previous government, as the cornerstone of their conservation efforts, we only have to remind ourselves of their recent track record protecting Alberta's parks and public lands. The Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society is calling on the province to commit to cooperative management of the park with Indigenous communities and to sustained funding to support community-based monitoring and the Indigenous Guardians program. Public engagement on the proposed expansion through an online survey is taking place until March 15th. Thanks, Andrea. And last but certainly not least, here's Charlotte Thomason talking about a mine blockade in Nunavut. On February 4th, 2021, a group of Inuit hunters, the Nulujat Land Guardians, blockaded the Baffinland Mary River Ore Mine Airstrip and Service Road in protest of the proposed doubling of the mine's output without proper consultation. The group is concerned an expansion in addition of a 110-kilometer railroad will have adverse effects on the caribou and narwhal populations. These animals are a critical food source for the Inuit people in the area. 
This comes after a time of tense hearings for the proposed expansion in late January and into early February. The Nunavut Impact Review Board was critiqued for limiting the number of questions each party can ask. Many community members believe the process is not putting the interests of the Inuit into consideration, and instead, quote, using Baffinland's bulldozer to complete the hearings as quickly as possible, end quote. Baffinland has a legal duty to consult with Inuit communities, and that is not being upheld with the rushed hearings. 700 staff were stranded at the Mary River Mine due to the blockade, and Baffinland filed an injunction despite the land guardians stating they would arrange one flight out per week and allow any emergency flights. An open letter was penned by a, quote, sizable minority of the workers stranded at the mine stating their support for the land guardians and the protest. Here is an excerpt. We recognize the Inuit as the rightful custodians of this land and as the people who should make the decisions about how it is used. Your protest has generated a lot of conversation among the workers here. Many of us are disappointed that our flights to return home were postponed, but some also consider it a small thing compared to the hundreds of years of colonization and cultural erasure that indigenous people have experienced and continue to experience at the hands of the Canadian government and the private sector, end quote. The open letter from the staff also stated that they were safe, flights could leave in emergencies, and that they had enough food to last through the blockade. This goes in opposition to the main arguments being put forth by Baffinland, stating that safety was their main concern for dismantling the blockade. Demonstrations in solidarity with the blockade erupted across Nunavut, with elders stating that they wanted the younger generations to have healthy, unpolluted lands. A temporary injunction was granted to Baffinland on February 10th, which prevents the Nulujat land guardians from blockading the airstrip and road. The group moved to a nearby cabin, but stated they would continue to fight for the land. Their demands include a more thorough review of the environmental impacts of the mine expansion, as well as altering the train route. There are also many calls within surrounding areas of the mine to have a larger share of the financial benefits from the mining operations. As of February 24th, the land guardians were still waiting to sit down with community leaders and politicians in Nunavut to discuss these terms. That's all the time we have for the February News Roundup. This month has had some big news stories, with many of them bringing extra hardship to many people, on top of the weight of dealing with a whole year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Check in with your friends, family, and neighbors. Let's try to keep those community networks strong and support each other. We'll be back next month with more of the news, and we'll continue to do our best to keep you informed about what's going on with government, industry, our communities, and our environment. If there's a news story that you want us to dive into, let us know by sending an email to tara at cjsr.com. Tara Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. 
and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at terrainforma. Want to stay up to date with everything we're releasing here at Terra Informa? If you visit our website, terrainforma.ca, you might notice that at the bottom of the page, there is a form where you can sign up for our newsletter. We'll send you reminders of when new episodes come out, previews of upcoming episodes, and extra information from episodes like our monthly news roundups. Put in your email address and you'll never miss an episode again. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Terra Informa.